Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. Something we've talked about on several occasions in the past is the idea of a social wealth fund. The idea here being that you would actually be taking some source of revenue and building up a large fund, which is publicly owned by the population at large, and that fund would be invested and the dividends from it would pay out to everyone in the region. We've seen this with the Alaska Permanent Fund, and there's now ideas being floated around doing this both at the national level and with other states. So I got to speak with a legislator in Maryland who is proposing a social wealth fund for that state. So here is my conversation with Maryland Delegate Gabriel Acevedo. Gabriel Acevedo, welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. Thanks for having me. So you proposed a bill that would start a social wealth fund with revenue from cannabis taxes in Maryland. To start, can you just describe what your bill proposes? Yeah, I introduced a piece of legislation, House Bill 1089, uh, this past session that in essence would have established, would have created uh, a social wealth fund, also known as the Maryland People's Fund. And the social wealth fund was designed to, uh, at some point, pay out uh, a citizen dividend or universal basic income from uh, the profits, the uh, revenue generated uh, on the tax of the sale of medical cannabis uh, in the state of Maryland, um, and at some point uh, would have paid out a basic dividend to every Marylander over the age of 18 in our state. But uh, we would have started our pilot program focusing on those most vulnerable uh, and uh, those low-income families who uh, are in urgent need of help. Uh, and uh, pretty much what this program and this economic policy is designed to just to lift those very same people out of poverty. Uh, and so the bill that I introduced would have, in essence, created a social wealth fund to be overseen or uh, uh, administered by our state treasurer, uh, who not only oversees a number of funds, uh, but also decides where state dollars are invested. Uh, and so what we were calling for was 25% of the proceeds from the tax on the sale of medical cannabis uh, to be placed in this fund, not to be touched, and for the state treasurer to invest those funds the way she would any other uh, state funds uh, in various portfolios and the profit or proceeds from which uh, we would be able to, at some point uh, in less than a decade, um, uh, and based on the projections of how much the medical cannabis industry is bringing into the state, uh, it would have taken, in my estimate, uh, less time than a decade. Uh, we would be able to pay out a citizen dividend to uh, every Marylander. But uh, I want to point out, because I think it's important that it's important for us to have a racial equity component to uh, this particular policy. Um, and what I mean by that is, uh, we know that communities of color uh, have had a very different relationship with the cannabis industry, uh, both uh, medical and recreational, compared to our white peers in that the war on drugs was an intentional one uh, that, in essence, decimated communities of color, uh, took uh, fathers away from homes, destroyed families, uh, and was uh, intentionally done uh, to disrupt and to uh, decimate those very communities that I'm talking about. And so now that we're looking at this industry and this 
uh, plan completely different today, it is neither fair nor equitable of us to be looking at policies that are centered around uh, medical cannabis or recreational cannabis, and to then say those communities that were locked up should then be locked out of this industry and cannot benefit from uh, what would be uh, a huge uh, proceeds that would come when you know we legalize it recreationally. We're already seeing um, uh, the amount of money that's coming in to state coffers for medical cannabis. Uh, just last year alone, the state projected that uh, we would bring in around 40-something million dollars uh, from the medical cannabis industry, uh, the industry uh, ended up performing way better than projected and raked in around 90-something million dollars. And so I think it's important when we're talking about policies like universal basic income, policies like social wealth fund, and especially using the proceeds from medical cannabis or from cannabis, uh, that we are centering the communities that were destroyed, that were decimated intentionally, uh, and ensure that whatever policies that we're looking at from universal basic income uh, to any other poverty alleviating program, that we're doing it through a racial equity lens. And I say that to say because the social wealth fund and universal basic income in the state, as I envision it, would center those families first, people of color, low-income families. And the hope is that one day we can uh, pay out a basic uh, a citizen dividend to every single Marylander that lives in the state of Maryland over the age of 18. Yeah, that racial justice issue is very much a live one in states that have recently legalized cannabis recreationally, like Massachusetts and California, among others, are are both kind of trying to figure out what racial justice means um, in, in enacting a, a, a cannabis program. And right. I'm wondering, well, and, and, and I think it's important because you mentioned Massachusetts and other, and other jurisdictions, and you're absolutely right. There are other states and localities that are moving on this. Uh, but when it comes to uh, 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 restorative justice and when it comes to racial equity, there are three things that every single jurisdiction, state, and this country should be looking at as it relates to uh, uh, the cannabis industry. One is the automatic expungement of uh, non-violent drug offense records uh, of people who are not just out of jail, but people who are in jail and ensuring uh, that we are not locking up uh, and making citizens second-class status over minor drug offenses. So automatic uh, expungement has to be a part of it. The second thing uh, is these very same communities that I just mentioned, there has to be equity within the industry, equity in terms of licenses, equity in terms of participation in the industry. Uh, and it's not just one where you have wealthy capitalists who are in essence flexing their muscle and using their financial resources to not only claim all the licenses, but to monopolize the industry as well. So equity has to be a part of it for black and brown communities. And third, the revenue that comes from medical or the legalization of recreational cannabis, wherever it is, a portion of those proceeds has to go back, must go back to the very same communities that were decimated by the intentional war on drugs. We know it was intentional. We know what Richard, why Richard Nixon launched this war to not only decimate communities of color, but also to disrupt the hippie community, 
right? And so when we talk about restorative justice, when we talk about racial equity, it has to include those three components. And a big part of that being uh, a reparative form uh, where we are directing the funds from this industry back to the very communities that were decimated. And we know where they are. We know uh, what communities were hurt by it, and we know what policies that we can invest in to ensure that Black, Latinx, and other marginalized community benefit from this now, you know, poised to be billion dollar industry. Yeah, and some former Nixon officials have been pretty explicit backing up exactly what you were just saying. So as a legislator, what does it mean for you to um, both be aiming toward a universal program, but also to be seeking restorative justice and equity towards these communities along the way? I'm a strong believer in evidence-based policymaking. Uh, and I believe that when there is sufficient evidence, when there's evidence uh, of good, we as legislators, we as public officials have a moral obligation to pursue that good uh, and see how we can formulate policies around that good. And when it comes to universal basic income, this is not a new idea. This is not something uh, that was just introduced uh, to the public dialogue around economic justice. Universal basic income, social wealth fund, or guaranteed income uh, has been a part of the American public dialogue for decades, right? We have uh, uh, great Americans who have advocated for these policies like FDR, Dr. Martin Luther King, Abayad Rustin, right, Ella Baker, so many other folks um, who have come before us that have advocated this. In fact, universal basic income and the discussion of universal basic income was introduced to the Congress decades ago, and it was introduced twice by uh, none other than Richard Nixon himself, a Republican. And when we talk about evidence-based policymaking, all we need to do is look at the state of Alaska that has a permanent fund, which is in essence a social wealth fund, uh, but that is tied to their gas industry, oil industry, I'm sorry. Uh, and they have, they have been discussing universal basic income since 1977. I believe they paid out their first citizen dividend in 1980. Uh, and right now, a family of four is in essence raking in $1,500 a month. And it's one of the most popular programs in the state. And you're seeing other jurisdictions replicating that. You know, Hawaii just passed uh, a, a resolution to study universal basic income uh, and, and, and where the, 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 the capital uh, would come from in order to get that social wealth fund started. We're looking at uh, cities like Stockton, California, that's looking at it as well, but through a public-private pilot program. So... Coming back to what I said earlier, evidence-based policymaking, we have evidence that this policy is doing good in people's lives and working families' lives and not just giving people a handout, but a hand up, which is important. And we're taking money uh, and putting it back into the hands of the people without, and we're lifting up Americans as a result. So I believe in evidence-based policymaking. There's a lot of research and data out there to prove the effectiveness uh, and uh, the positive implications if we were to act on this. And so I think it just makes sense for not just legislators in my state, but across the country to be looking at this policy, to be introducing it, 
and to find ways in which we can create more social wealth funds to not just pay out basic dividends, but to deal with things like childcare, right? Important things in our community. Um, and I think as with every other policy, there has to be a racial equity lens to it. And it's time for us, given uh, uh, past injustices and, 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 and the history of disparities, that we have an obligation to look at every single piece of policy through a racial equity lens and universal basic income is not immune from that. Yeah, and I just want to drill down on that slightly more. Um, for a universal program, we talk about this a lot on this, on this podcast, it's a universal program that would have a, a disproportionately positive effect on, uh, on underrepresented minorities and, you know, um, on, and specifically African-Americans, among others. And um, how do you, would you seek to um, put parts of that in the legislation itself, put that, that racial justice component, or is it more that the impacts would, would have a racial justice impact? Well, that has to be part of the legislating, right? That what we, we, we cannot leave that up to the implementation process. That's, you know, why we have, you know, agencies and administrators to handle that. But we craft, we formulate the policies and we ensure that there's a racial equity component to it so that when the administrators are implementing it, they know how to implement it and which communities that they should be intentionally working with, that they should be monitoring. Um, uh, uh, and seeing how this, imp uh, this policy positively or negatively impacts them. So it starts with the legislator, right? And so we have to include language uh, that addresses the inequity, that addresses the historical injustice, and that's just part of the messy policymaking process. So, yeah, getting into the, the policymaking process, uh, you know, medical cannabis revenues as good a place as any to start with this, but I assume it's not the only funding source you'd be looking at long term. What other revenue sources might you bring into the, the social wealth fund? Yeah, so we're not just looking at medical cannabis. The reason why we looked at it is because when we talk about poverty, when we talk about lifting working families, uh, particularly black and brown communities and the relationship that they have with marijuana or cannabis, uh, I felt like it was important for us to link the two together, universal basic income and the medical, the booming medical cannabis industry uh, in the state of Maryland. But we are also looking at a number of revenue sources. Uh, Maryland is a microcosm of what we're seeing nationally, gross income inequality, those at the top, uh, the 1%, uh, those who are wealthy in our state are not paying their fair share. And our current archaic tax code uh, is, is hurt disproportionately people of color, LGBTQ people, women. Uh, and as a result, we see the kind of economy uh, uh, and the kind of state coffers um, that we see today. And so when we talk about creating other social wealth funds designed for, let's say, paying out a child care subsidy or child care dividend, we have to look uh, at those in our community and our society who can and should, but aren't paying more and ensure that those individuals that do earn more are paying their fair share into the pot. Uh, and one of the things that we're looking at is Maryland's archaic tax code, uh, ensuring that those who are in a particular income bracket who are doing very well for themselves are paying more and directing those funds into a social wealth fund to be invested uh, and the proceeds from which 
there's a number of things that we can do. We can not only increase the amount uh, of dividend that we pay out to uh, Marylanders, uh, but we can also offer a child care dividend or subsidy, right? Uh, we can also offer a array of other uh, social programs such as social housing and others, but it starts with our tax code and it starts with those who can and should but aren't paying more stepping up and doing so. And if they aren't, again, we as policymakers have a moral obligation to ensure that there is equity and that those who should be paying more are paying more so that our state coffers uh, are reflecting a more accurate revenue and we're paying uh, and, and able to provide the services that people so critically depend on. And could you just tell us the status of your, your bill right now? Is it still moving? Our session was January through April. We adjourned sine die. Uh, any bill uh, that uh, was uh, any bill that didn't pass before we adjourned uh, is dead. Uh, but we do plan on reintroducing the issue. Uh, we're building an even bigger coalition uh, and beginning a statewide education uh, campaign because I think it starts there first, educating Marylanders on the benefits. Uh, of creating social wealth funds, the benefits of universal basic income. I'll point out that, you know, not just the presidential candidate running on this issue, but you have a number of presidential candidates who have indicated that they support universal basic income. And so uh, I think it's important for states to lead. And we'll be reintroducing the bill next session. And right now we're just educating folks uh, statewide uh, on why it is that we need policies like this, where it exists before, and the success stories, and how we can make that work for Maryland uh, 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 by not just looking at the cannabis industry, but other revenue sources as well. And that's interesting. How are you doing that outreach? So we're working with a number of organizations in the state uh, that do uh, economic justice and economic policy uh, uh, research. Uh, and we are uh, specifically going to parts of the state where um, there's high poverty, concentration of poverty, because one of uh, the most effective tools uh, to poverty elimination, in addition to uh, the earned income tax credit, a living wage index to inflation, is universal basic income. And so I think it's important for uh, these localities or these jurisdictions where there are high concentration of poverty where there are people who could use uh, uh, an additional uh, $500 every week, two weeks or a month, um, educating those folks on what it is that we're trying to accomplish and getting their buy-in. Um, you know, as an organizer, one of the things that we learn a lot is nothing about us without us is for us. And so if we're talking about a policy uh, that would benefit uh, working poor people, um, low-income families, it's important for us to include them in the policymaking process and get their thoughts, get their buy-in and their input, uh, because that's how legislation is really passed. It's through the political education, uh, through the organizing and the mobilization, and through the legislating and the implementing. So it starts there, and we're educating more folks about it. And one of the things that we're noticing when we go across the state and we talk to folks about universal basic income and social wealth funds is that largely people agree and they do so uh, from both sides of the political divide, right? Democrats 
Republicans, as I mentioned earlier, Alaska, um, they passed uh, UBI decades ago, and it was actually the libertarian wing of the Republican Party that passed it. Uh, we see a lot of other jurisdictions and states looking at it that are pretty left-leaning. So this is not a left or right uh, uh, issue. Neither uh, side has uh, ownership of the issue. But one of the things that we can recognize uh, is its benefits uh, for all people. And it's just about ensuring that we're not just legislating given that, but we're doing it in a very equitable and conscious way. Well, those are the questions I had for you. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? I would just say that, you know, we, we have to continue to have these conversations. Um, I appreciate you uh, inviting me onto the podcast to talk about my bill uh, and the work that I'm trying to do here in Maryland. Uh, but we got to continue these conversations because social wealth funds are not just beneficial in terms of paying out a basic dividend or UBI, uh, but they're also beneficial uh, in terms of a lot of things. Uh, I mentioned childcare earlier, um, and we have to start exploring ways in which we can not just uh, look at social wealth funds differently and create more, uh, but how we can get those funds to work for the people that it's intended to help. So continue to have those conversations, continue to organize, and also to continue to challenge both the Democratic, Republican, and presidential candidates, considering that, you know, we are, we're not in a presidential election year, but we are seeing a lot of candidates stumping for the presidency. And I think it's time that we start asking those hard and direct questions, where candidates stand on universal basic income, where candidates stand in getting more money back into the hands of people without? Uh, and where do candidates stand on democratizing our economy? Right. And this is a huge part of that. So continuing the conversation and ensuring that by 2021, we are implementing policies that would address the, uh, the, the coming automation and elimination of jobs. We're seeing that today. It's going to be worse in the next 10 to 15 years. The only difference is we are not prepared or poised to uh, deal with the impact uh, of, of, of that automation. And I think that's where UBI comes in. And so continuing having those conversations and holding candidates, not just presidential candidates, but gubernatorial, municipal, state legislators accountable because we're seeing other jurisdictions doing it. The question is, why aren't your local uh, 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 elected officials working to ensure that whatever jurisdiction, city, county, state that you live in, that we're establishing social wealth funds for the good of people and we're looking at universal basic income more seriously. That was Owen speaking with Maryland Delegate Gabriel Acevedo on the Basic Income Podcast. So I thought that Delegate Acevedo's approach here was interesting. Obviously, you have the core social wealth fund model similar to what you see in Alaska. But it was so clear how important the racial equity lens was to him on this. And I thought his approach of saying the fund is eventually going to pay out universal dividends to everyone once it reaches a certain size but initially, the funds are going to be more targeted towards specific communities most in need. And it sounded like 
communities of color uh, that specifically had been hit hard by the war on drugs. I mean, in some ways, this effectively makes the initial fund operations a, a kind of form of reparations, not for slavery, but rather for the policy injustices that you've seen through the war on drugs around these communities so that you're, you're starting off with that and then it kind of phases into, okay, we're, we've dealt with that to some degree at least and now we have this universal benefit that everyone will receive. Yeah, it's something I, I've thought about off and on is like, could you package a UBI with reparations? You know, some people are advocating for this. And yeah, one way to go about it is to say, well, a universal basic income might not be universal to start. So maybe you target it toward descendants of, of slaves to begin with. I, I, I'd be fascinated to see how that would play out if, if that is, in fact, what the legislation ends up saying, because And I think, you know, there are issues with targeting that we've discussed ad nauseum here. But also, if you're going to start with someone and for a state level social wealth fund, you might not have a lot of funds to work with when you start to give out dividends. So it might make sense to do some targeting to begin with. And yeah, I think it'll just be very interesting, both politically, I think on a policy level. uh, Sure, I'm definitely interested politically. I think, you know, it's going to be a a hot wire to touch, but you know, I think he's he's going full force into that, and and he attracted a lot of co-sponsors to this bill, and it sounds like it's got momentum. I also think, and I think reparations and UBI is definitely worth its own episode, which we should do at some point soon. But something that I've heard in talking to other people about this is, oftentimes when we when we say reparations, the only thing we think about is transferring some amount of money or assets or, or some sort of economic solution. Whereas I know for many people, a core part of what would actually make reparations be real is the truth and reconciliation process, where there actually is public acknowledgement of the harms that have been visited and that go, going through, making sure people understand that and provide using that to provide context effectively for whatever then your economic approach is. And so I, I wonder if that's something that is either to some degree naturally happening through the policymaking process, or, or if that's something that Delegate Acevedo is pushing through this, is, is around, okay, let's tell this greater story. Because most people don't really understand how much the war on drugs was intentional about, yeah. about targeting communities of color and, and, and poor people. And so is this an opportunity to actually make that more visible so, so people really get what happened there and hopefully then that affecting everything going forward because people have this understanding in mind. Yeah, I just think the storytelling component that you just touched on there is so important to the whole conversation around racial justice and cash programs and, and reparations. And, you know, maybe a UBI is the closest we'll get to reparations, but if it comes with if it is a true universal cash dividend and it comes with that storytelling where it's not just, okay, everyone gets cash, great, you know, moving on, but it, it has this component of, look, we've historically robbed certain communities of their wealth and their ability to build generational wealth, and now we are working toward correcting that, um, even if it doesn't, if the legislation doesn't specifically target it, but target those communities, but it has that effect and the storytelling comes with it. You know, that's tremendous progress. 
Yeah, I mean, as you say, I think this is something that's there, there's so much to dig into here that that I think yeah, we'll we'll definitely want to revisit yeah. it soon. The other thing that stood out to me is what he's doing now. That since he wasn't able to get this passed in the first year that it was introduced, he's he's going out and effectively doing organizing around it. He's he's talking to community groups, he's talking to local nonprofits. And building, not just, it sounds like not just saying like, oh, this is good supported, but trying to get people to really understand what's behind it here, to, to see where this is all coming from. And I think that that's so critical for all this stuff because so much of the messaging that people get is in soundbite form and maybe you like it, maybe you don't, but it's not something that can ever really in any degree challenge your kind of underlying assumptions about the world. And so I, I think this sort of work uh, has the potential not just to make a difference for what policies may get passed at the state level, but ultimately for, for what we can do broadly around this topic. Yeah, when I first heard about his bill, I was thinking of it almost as a sneak attack where you're taking this new revenue source, just a chunk of it, and putting it in this fund that just benefits everyone. Okay, sounds good. And you know, maybe a decade or two down the line, all of a sudden you've got a universal dividend. Whereas this is very much not a sneak attack. This this is him um, both fronting the the racial justice component of it, but also just coming out and saying his long term goals. And the short term policy is is very much a step one, but but it's a step one that doesn't hide where it's going. So which is important because if you do step one, you know, in in ten years it's going to be a whole different legislature. So who knows where where they're going to take that step if anywhere. And regardless of whether this bill moves forward, he's building up the political will around something like this. And maybe it it could eventually be something that attacks attacks what he wants to do a bit more directly. All right. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. And if you like what you hear, please do make sure to rate and review us on the podcast service of your choice. We'll talk to you next time. Mm